Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. My name is Heather Brunskill Evans. I'm spokeswoman for Philia, and today I'm talking with Alva Smith, who is an Irish feminist activist. Um, Alva, I'm very honoured to speak to you. Um, I have to say, I've just been watching some of your YouTubes, and I'm very fired up about this conversation. <laughs> Um, you, you spoke to the kinds of things that I'm very concerned about at the moment. So, but I would like you to explain to the listener, Alva, um, what form your feminist activism takes in Ireland. Well, first of all, let me say, Heather, it's a great pleasure to, to talk with you and um, to do Ophelia podcast. Uh, and, you know, the form my activism takes, you know, I've been a feminist since... Uh, probably the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 80s. So I do go back a long way. Um, and really the best way to describe it is to say, I feel that my activism takes whatever shape or form seems to be required in the place I'm in at whatever moment in time it is. Yes, but um, yes. a very constant thread of my own work has been um, looking, I suppose, you know, analysing and indicating what kinds of actions we should be taking because I was for a very long time an academic and set up women's studies in my university, University College Dublin, way back when, in fact, it started uh, started in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but also sort of thinking about how can we use those places that we have, that we do occupy as women, where we do have some influence, if not always a lot of power, how can we use those places to open them up to, um, to feminist knowledge and, and, and thinking and acting, and also open them up physically and materially to more women? So that was very much my view at the university. But it's also true that it's what I think about in relation to political systems more broadly or any kinds of, of institutions. But in Ireland, we uh, have had since the beginning of the 80s, a really, really 1980s, a really um, draconian uh, abortion regime, which I think a lot of women are very aware of, a lot of women elsewhere are very, very aware of, where um, abortion was completely prohibited, except to save a woman's life, by a, a constitutional referendum that we had in 1983. And I think it's fair to say that, among other issues, that that fundamentally pro-choice issue, pro-legislation um, on abortion issue, has been a very, very, very constant thread in my own activist life for the past 35, nearly going on 40 years now. And that's not to say that I think it's the only issue, but there's absolutely no doubt that when women don't have reproductive rights, when we don't have specifically access to abortion, that the very basic freedom that is so important to all of us in our lives is denied to us and we do have to fight for it. That's a rather long answer to your question. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, long answers are good. Um, <laughs> we want to hear what you've got to say. 
as you were speaking, I was just thinking that um, because we've had abortion rights in um, England and, um, well, I suppose the mm -hmm. UK, um, apart from Northern Ireland, of course, which I think you'll come on to, um, it, it, feels, it can be easily dismissed, the, the struggle that you've had for abortion rights in Ireland, because it feels far away, because we've had these rights for so long now. It's yes, that an old struggle. So what's interesting about what you're saying is it's actually a very, very present struggle for you in Ireland. Well, it, it was a very present struggle for us, but perhaps it's changed somewhat, obviously, since we won, you know, a tremendous victory uh, just over a year ago in, in a referendum. But I, I would have to say that, you know, abortion rights for women world over are Absolutely. by no means a done deal. And Absolutely. in many countries where they have been taken for granted, they are now absolutely under threat. I only have to mention the US, for yeah. the USA, for people to be very well aware of that, to look at Poland. But also, I mean, elsewhere in Europe, to think that Hungary is by no means safe from the depredations of, um, of Prime Minister Orban. Um, uh, Germany has seen a lot of questioning about its abortion legislation in Italy. There's relatively good legislation, but incredibly bad actual abortion access for women where hospitals say they don't have the staff or that the staff all have conscientious objections. And it can be very, very, very difficult for, for women, even in, in many, many European countries, Malta doesn't have abortion at all, uh, to access the service. So that it's really interesting to, to see how um, abortion which has been such a salient issue for us in Ireland, that it has never gone away as a problem in so many other parts of the world, and that it is increasingly under attack at the moment, that right, in countries where it had apparently been achieved or realised. And it's under attack because, of course, with the rise of right-wing or extreme right-wing populist movements, um, women's bodies and sexuality more broadly. I'm lesbian, so, you know, I, I also do a lot of LGBTIQ uh, activism. Um, it's it, that our bodies and the freedoms and safety of our bodies are absolute targets for extreme right-wing forces. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, isn't that going a bit far? And I'd say, no, it absolutely isn't. If you look at the trends, if you look at what is happening, um, it, it, it really, this, this is not an exaggeration to say that reproductive rights, women's reproductive rights are a primary battleground in relation to women's freedom still in, um, you know, in 2019. And it is, they are also, those reproductive rights are the sort of the first target for the forces of misogyny and, um, and also indeed of homo and transphobia and so on. They are the first target for all of those political forces that are, are massing, even as you and I speak here on the podcast, and that are variously knocked back here and there, but that continue to flourish. There are victories, there are wins. Um, there was Ireland a year ago, uh, they had a big win in the Kenyan High Court the other day in relation to abortion. But there are also the huge ongoing difficulties that we know of. Um, in relation to the UK, I mean, 
it's really very interesting. I mean, there, there is an argument which would say that were it not for the 1967 Abortion Act in Britain, um, which did not extend to the north of Ireland, uh, if, we had, if that act had not been passed, Irish women would have been, or women in Ireland, would have been in a very much more difficult situation because what effectively happened for women in Ireland after the passage of the 1967 Act was that women in Ireland who could, who had the resources that enabled them to travel to Britain for abortion were actually able to do so, not without difficulty, not without distress, not without suffering and uh, uh, completely unnecessary humiliation. Um, but there was some kind of, uh, there was some kind of doorway yeah. that was opened up to women here in Ireland in 1967, which grew in the 1970s and in the 1980s and 90s in particular. That became, you know, the numbers began to decrease as the, uh, as the abortion pill became more widespread, the use of the abortion pill uh, in you know, basically just in, in the mid-2000s. But were it not for the 1967 Act, we would have been in an even worse situation here in Ireland. But it also meant that successive Irish governments could say, oh, well, we don't have abortion in Ireland. Um, we didn't, you know, collect statistics because technically, legally, abortion was completely prohibited. Even before 1983, it was completely prohibited. But every year, in the 80s and the 90s, we had six, 7,000 women traveling over to, to Britain. So we didn't have abortion in Ireland, but we did have Irish abortion, if you see what I mean, if I, I can make that distinction. Yes. Yes. So it's, it's a really very interesting relationship. I, I, you know, I don't need to spell it out to anybody. Relationships between Ireland and Britain are always complex. Yeah. Um, and, in, so, in some cases, obviously, they can be very productive and helpful relationships. And there is no doubt that the ways in, in the, the fact that women could travel from Ireland to Britain was a great solace, while at the same time being a great source of distress for yes. women in this country. Um, so we're also facing a situation now where... I hesitate to mention it, but with the looming Brexit, um, where, oh, you no. know, that, <laughs> I know, but that situation, <laughs> that situation is liable to become even more complicated. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it really would do because, I mean, I can go into the detail later, but basically we have now for the past, well, since the 1st of January, technically our law stipulates that abortion is available effectively on request up to uh, the end of the first trimester, well, basically up to 12, the first, the end of the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Thereafter, it's available only when there is a serious risk to the health of the woman and in cases of fatal, fatal fetal anomaly. Um, but that means that, of course, a number of women, perhaps quite a substantial number of women, are continuing to have to travel to the UK. If, for example, they're in the 13th week of pregnancy, they don't have a particular health problem, uh, they'll have to go to the UK. Um, so that that traffic, if you like, uh, which is a one-way uh, journey, is, is going to continue at least for the next few years until our, our law is due for review in three, in 
now two and a half years time and I hope that we will be able to expand it but I wouldn't really be holding my breath so that we're still going to need to have that possibility of accessing abortion in Britain after the 12th uh, week and perhaps later in pregnancy for women with um, fetal anomalies that are not fatal but which are nonetheless very serious so you know there are a lot of there are a lot of uncertainties there for us at the present time, yes. um, but we we certainly do not see that pathway as being now closed down because of our legislation. Although I think the numbers have already uh, shown a drop since since January, the numbers travelling. Mm. Mm. I was going to just briefly ask you what was so significant about the year nineteen eighty three. Yes, well, 1983, we had a uh, a referendum because we have a because we have a written constitution. I know there's a constitution in Britain, but it's not written down, and many people wish it were at the moment. Yeah. But we have a written constitution, um, and uh, at that time in 1981, 82, 83, a small lobby of anti-abortion activists, very largely. I think inspired and I might say encouraged and promoted by anti-abortion, the anti-abortion lobby in the US felt that it would be a very good idea if our already very prohibitive abortion law was safeguarded or backed up, the, the term used was copper fastened, by the integration into our constitution of a ban on abortion so that let's let's inscribe that in the constitution. Mm -hmm. So it's quite unusual really for constitutions to ascribe, to inscribe very negative um, clauses. Constitutions tend on the whole to be aspirational and to, to seek to achieve certain ideals. But this specific uh, clause was viewed as prohibiting, excluding, banning, and therefore being completely negative as regards women's freedoms. And unfortunately, that uh, clause, which was called the Eighth Amendment, because that was, it was the Eighth Amendment to our constitution uh, since 1920, well, basically it's the 1936 constitution, and it was only the Eighth Amendment that had ever been made. Yes. It, it banned abortion by saying that effectively the life of the unborn, as it was called in the clause, and the life of the mother, which was the term used in the clause, uh, were effectively equal. So that you really, you couldn't carry out abortion because this would be to um, impact the right to life of the unborn. Um, and that de facto gave a higher status to the life of the unborn than the life of the mother. I prefer to use the terms fetus and woman, but I'm mm. quoting the constitution now. Mm. And you know, that we already had an act which was actually passed by the British in 1861. Um, it's the, the very famous Offences Against the Person Act, which of course obtained in pretty well all of the British colonies, including India, and which regulated sexuality as well as uh, reproduction. Um, and the 1861 Act prohibited uh, abortion uh, for 
any reason whatsoever and made it a criminal offence punishable by life imprisonment with penal servitude. So we, we already had that act in force in Ireland, minus the penal servitude. That, you know, should I say, I am grateful to say that that had gone at that stage. But we already had incredibly draconian legislation. No, you couldn't get an abortion in Ireland anyway. And then this copper fastening exercise took place. Mm -hmm. And in the early 1980s, Ireland was still a very, um, we were emerging from decades and decades of poverty, of uh, economic difficulty. And we were still very much under the thumb of the authoritarian version of Catholicism, particularly authoritarian version of Catholicism that we had uh, in Ireland. And that um, referendum was passed by a majority of 66%, just over 66%, which meant actually that, you know, over two thirds of the people were in favour of it. But we also need to tell ourselves a little bit more positively that even back in 1983, a third of the population were against it. And, and following that, then, there was a very long and very, very difficult history, very time-consuming for those of us who are pro-choice and feminist. A whole series of referendums followed. We had uh, a referendum, which was actually three referendums, again in 1992, which was known as the X case referendum, where a 14-year-old who had been raped was uh, refused, her parents were refused permission to bring her to Britain for an abortion um, because this would be against the law. That went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that uh, Miss X could have uh, an abortion because she was suicidal and that suicide constituted a threat to her life. And that meant uh, um, that was a very important ruling, if you like, it gave it a tiny little breach in the the constitutional ban. But no government actually legislated on foot of the Supreme Court ruling. So even in 1992, we still had, basically, we still had the 1861 Act. And we had another referendum in 2002 asking us to rule out the suicide, a threat of suicide as grounds for abortion. We'd been asked that in 92. We said, no, we don't want to rule it out. Uh, We were asked to come back to that same question in 2002. The turnout was very low. People were fed up with this, you know, batting us about from court to court. Um, And, but the people again said, no, we don't want to rule out suicide. So at that stage, we had had something like five referendums and um, it, it was a very, very, very difficult situation. Actually, in 92, what was particularly interesting and also disgraceful was that we were asked if we thought as a people that women should have access to information about abortion. And we were asked if we thought that women should have the right to travel to yeah. other jurisdictions. And yet, we there we were as a fine, upstanding member of the democratic nations of the world seeking a seat on the UN Security Council and I don't know what not and vaunting our human rights record and having the absolute um, impertinence and insolence of putting to the people questions which were actually about our fundamental democratic rights to information and to travel 
which have never been an issue. We have never been prohibited from traveling. Ireland, you know, apart from the Catholic Church, has never been a dictatorship. So, you know, it, it is really a very, very interesting history in terms of human rights, in terms of how governments can avoid and evade and seek to evade really important issues which have to do with women's health, women's well-being, women's fundamental rights, and effectively get away with it for a very long time. It, it astonishes me, actually. This is a perfect example of the way that in a liberal democracy, everyone is entitled to human rights, but somehow it becomes justified that human women's human rights are curtailed. And those two things can live together seeming yes without contradiction in people's minds it's astonishing isn't it i find yes. it astonishing. it yeah. is astonishing but the contradictions were there in women's lives because we we were de facto subservient to the rights of the fetus because when a doctor when a medical practitioner came to had a very difficult situation for example where it was a matter of saving either the mother or um, the baby before, before during a pregnancy, the fetus or the woman, you know, the European Court of Human Rights said, ticked Ireland off actually in 2010, 11 and 12, basically, and said, look, what, what you've done is create a situation which produces a chilling factor for doctors. And the chilling factor is that the doctor stands there and said, well, if I go this way or if I go that way, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going against, the, I'm, you know, at least potentially in contravention of our constitution. So if I save the life of the fetus, it means I'm not saving the life of the, the, the woman. If I save the life of the woman, I am actually going to contravene. So that very often action wasn't taken. And it was precisely that very point which we as campaigners and I mean, I've been involved since before 1983, we had forecast all along that these cases would come up and they did come up along the way, but they came up particularly with particular salience in 2012 when a young woman, uh, she was an Indian woman who had come to work in Ireland with her husband. They lived in the west of Ireland in Galway and she uh, was pregnant with her first child. It was uh, you know, a wanted pregnancy and uh, started to miscarry at the 14th week. She presented at the hospital and between the jigs and the reels, she was told uh, that she was definitely miscarrying. So she and her husband uh, requested a termination of the pregnancy because it was an inevitable miscarriage. And she was told, no, that wouldn't be possible because they could still detect a fetal heartbeat. And within the following uh, eight or nine days, uh, that young woman, um, Savita Halapanava was her name, died. She died of sepsis mm. as a result of continuing um, to miscarry. And, um, but that miscarriage not having been terminated, she, she developed sepsis. So, I mean, this caused an absolute, this was a it caused outrage in Ireland. People were scandalised that this would happen in 2012. And I think that there was, you know, a very real sense that enough is enough. We've had this going on now for 35 years. Some, we have to put a stop to this hypocrisy. A, that there isn't 
abortion in Ireland when quite clearly, you know, there were thousands of women going for abortions in Britain every year. And secondly, um, that uh, women's lives are safe because patently this woman's life had not been safe. This woman lost her life because of the Eighth Amendment in the Constitution. So, you know, it, it, it was a terrible, terrible tragedy which actually brought things to a head and which came at about the same time as that ruling I mentioned from the European Court of Human Rights, which said, which shook its, its finger at Ireland and said, you have not legislated, you have to clarify when abortion is legal and when it is not. Yeah. So we decided at that point in 2012 or just in 2013 mm. that we would take the initiative as you know, pro-choice people and that we would start a campaign for repeal of the Eighth Amendment, which was exactly what we did. Yes. And we won, and which is the important point. That's fantastic. <laughs> Do you know, Alva, what I'm thinking as you're speaking, I'm wondering how this has affected you personally, because as I understand it, effectively, you've taken a position which throughout this very long period started off with your voice being at odds with the majority voice yes and i well, know that that I'm, I'm sure you and you had allies and you had people um who supported you and and who you supported but it seems to me that that is a very brave but lonely position to to have been in and you also then as as i understand it predicted you know the eventual consequences of this so you've stuck with something um and you've yeah. been demonstrated to be right yes. as it were so you now have uh the society in which you live understanding where you were coming from then although i imagine that originally there must have been great hostility to you so what yes. is how how well. is that left you a big question with we could talk about it well you know i often say when if i'm giving a talk or something and that question comes up i say you know i you see before you a broken woman but that's not actually true no. um <laughs> but it it first of all i would absolutely say that there was never any moment when i was alone you know that that just simply wasn't the case because women have fought tooth and nail in this country for uh, the right to, to abortion and for the reversal of the, the removal of that Eighth Amendment. Yeah. Um, and I fought really very, very, very hard. I mean, I think perhaps, you know, along with a uh, few others, there aren't that many of us who were able to kind of, in, were in a position to kind of stay the course, I suppose. And that's to do with age and all kinds of things like that. But um, I mean, it, it has certainly been a very interesting time. My own experience has been that, I mean, I came out as lesbian around about 1990. And that was very, that was also very, very difficult because, uh, I mean, we did have a great victory with our marriage equality referendum in 2015. But I would also say that the recognition and, if you like, the righting of the wrongs against um, LGBT uh, QI people has has taken a very very long time in Ireland as well as as it has indeed elsewhere. But uh, you know, I used to say to myself, which is the worst? Is it worse to be lesbian, or is it worse to be pro-choice? And you know, in the overall picture, it's really bad to be both. Let me tell you that it's really bad to be both, or it was for a very long time. But actually, I think being known as 
very strongly pro-choice and advocating women's right to abortion and constantly pointing out that this was not just a human right, that it was a human right for a reason, that it's a human right because it is actually about women's health and it is actually about women's well-being. And that means that it's about the health and well-being and decency and rightness of women and their families and their communities, that this is not just about an individual right. This is about a whole social nexus, which is incredibly important, and that denying um, access to abortion for women is actually damaging to the individual, damaging to the point of being fatal in some tragic cases, but it but is also damaging on a much wider on a much wider social scale. I mean, to say to be known as that kind of advocate was really to be a pariah in a polite society. And I mean, I was an academic, I was a head of a, a centre and had set up women's studies, but I mean, I was certainly known, and I was not alone, but I was definitely known as that, you know, uh, suite of kind of bad words, uh, radical feminist. Yes. And you did not, radical lesbian feminist, and you did not get brownie points for that mm -hmm. uh, yes. in Ireland, au contraire. Whereas now, over the past year, there has been, <laughs> it makes me laugh, Heather, yes. because people, they don't exactly fall over themselves to say you were right. Yes. But there is, they have had to be really polite. Yes. They have had to integrate me into you know, institutions and so on that I've no particular, you know, need or ambition to, to be in, in yes. situations. But there, there has now, I think, for all those of us who fought for so long, there is at long last a kind of modicum of respect. Yes. Um, I don't know how deep that goes, because as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I do think that women's bodies and I'm thinking much more broadly, I'm thinking also of our safety, our security in, in terms of violence against us in all kinds of ways, our economic well-being, which is actually also about our material bodies and our health and yes. so on. Yes. We are still major targets and we are major targets of right-wing misogynistic forces. So I would say that patriarchy may have been to some extent silenced in some places, but it is... Yes it is always ready to rise up again and attack in exactly the same ways. Because I what my, agree with you. Yeah. My experience has taught me that really they, they, they attack in the same way all the time. So yeah. they don't see some kind of need to change their tactics. But it was very isolating. And personally, and again, I'm sure I speak for thousands and millions of women around the world. And I say that when you take on these battles, I don't think you know at the start, well, I certainly didn't, <clears throat> I don't think we do, but you don't know what personal cost, what price you're going to have to pay personally. Yes. But there is always a price. Yes. Uh, in fact, there are many prices and many costs. Yes. And they're generally about being sidelined, silenced, or yes. attempts made to silence you. Yes. They are about non-recognition, dismissal, contempt. They're about um, they're they're about the kinds of insults and humiliations yes. uh, that you can experience. And in a way, when when if and when you do have a victory, and we do have victories in our feminist lives, 
yes. there is a kind of rehabilitation that can take place, but it's not stable. It can be knocked sideways by, you know, some political, another political party or mm. another framework, another political framework heaving into view, which yes. is more misogynist and more pa patriarchal than the preceding one. Yeah. So it is a risky business, but at the same time, it is, I think, much more dangerous not to take action, not to speak up, not to get out there, because uh, unless we do those things and do so collectively, and the more of us there are, the better, we know that, yes. and the stronger we are, um, unless we do that, quite simply, the lives of girls and women are at risk. I, I was at a very, very big conference in Vancouver last week, the Women Deliver Conference, which had eight and a half thousand girls and women, which is absolutely from all over the world, absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, in panel after panel after panel, women's reproductive rights were coming up as under threat, at risk, unstable, not guaranteed, uh, difficult, uh, no services, uh, disregard, bad services, you know, just every single place, you know. And that was before going to the panels on, on violence. That was before going to the panels on women's poverty. That was before uh, going to the panels on sexuality. So it's just, it seems to me that the more we can, the more often we can get thousands of women together to say, we all have to stand up all together now and say, we will not stand for this. We will not take this anymore. And that was really what we did in Ireland back in 20, 2012, 2013. We took hold of the debate, if you like, the, yeah. the discourse. We said, we're putting it onto the agenda again. We are not waiting for some government to tell us what's going to happen. We're yeah. going to tell you what we want to see happening. And taking that initiative was a very... It was a very wise thing to do. Absolutely. Admittedly, it was after an appalling tragedy, of course. Yes. To a conclusion, otherwise we're going to go on for a very long time. Um, <laughs> what I what I would have liked to have strayed into, but perhaps it's too much for the one podcast, was the relationship between control over one's reproductive rights and sec um, auton sexual autonomy um, too. And obviously those things are deeply connected to each other. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So if you just have a minute to respond to that, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then we'll draw it to a close. Well, you know, I've always felt that and I've had this experience politically over the past uh, four, four or five more years here in Ireland, that uh, when we're talking about our sexual freedoms and autonomy, and when we're talking about our reproductive freedoms and autonomy, um, that while the issues come up in, in different kinds of frames, that fundamentally um, they are obviously about the same kind, the same nature of freedom and the same nature, the same type, the same kind of human rights. And that's borne out by the fact that whether we're talking about um, 
the rights of lesbians and gays or whether we're talking about the right to abortion for everyone who needs an abortion or whether we're, you know, whenever we're talking about these rights and these freedoms, they are opposed by exactly the same opposition, exactly the same enemy, exactly the same source of the the hostility and the antagonism. Um, and in, in, in both cases, the opponents are seeking to reduce us to effectively to our biology and to say, you are simply your biology so that women um, are vessels, that women are what one of our banners used to be always in our marches, women are not vessels. We are not we are not just our bodies, we are not just our uh, biology, and that we have to be seen in the round so that those efforts to kind of tell us and dictate to us uh, what we can and can't do with our bodies are actually about keeping us in that subordinate, inferior, Mm -hmm. oppressed positions. So, you know, wherever you look, you you actually have that same... uh, that, that same opposition, you have that same patriarchal force uh, yeah. descending on you or being imposed on, on you. So I've always felt that fighting, if you like, those two battles has always been about fighting um, the same enemy. And I've never felt any kind of discomfort uh, in that because they are at a very deep level connected. However, when you're out there fighting for, we'll say, as we were in Ireland, Uh, in our referendum in 2015, if you're fighting for the right of lesbians and gay people specifically to marry, and then you're fighting in 2018 for the right of women and everyone, anyone who needs an abortion, to have that freedom to have an abortion, the issues issues are, are, are framed somewhat differently. And you have an address to your electorate that's somewhat different. In the case of marriage, what lesbians and gays were saying was, look, we effectively want the same rights as you do. We want the same rights as heterosexual people have. Um, And that fundamentally is a right to have as a partner you know, whoever whoever we choose, just as you can as heterosexual people. So it, it was framed in Ireland very much as being about love and just about being a, a sort of chance at happiness. Yeah. Um, uh, there is a cynic in me that says, well, yes, until divorce happens. But, but fundamentally, this is set up as something positive. You know, yes. weddings and marriages are about uh, feasting and celebration and presents and all those sorts of People associate that with the degree of happiness. That's yeah. not the case with abortion. Yeah. There is no way that you can set this up as a happy moment. It yeah. is a moment and, and an event and a process, a procedure, which generally speaking for the majority of women brings a sense of relief, great relief in many cases, but that is not straightforward that is not, that can also, that relief can be accompanied by a sense of loss and a sense of grief. Um, So it's not the same, those decisions and those processes and those moments, they're of a different order, a different tenor, a different kind of meaning in a person's life. Um, I think that, that people can when they're young, aspire maybe to marry and have a family and so on. 
nobody aspires to have an abortion. An abortion is something you have when actually, ironically, you don't have a choice. When there isn't a choice, when that is the wisest and most sensible and basically the only thing for you to do uh, in, in your life. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to cope for whatever reason. And the reasons, as we know, are, you know, as individual as the women who, who have the abortion. So it, it is, they are very different. Yes. Um, and I think you also have to pay attention to that and respect that and understand it. So that when we told stories in the marriage equality referendum about our couple and you know not me personally but uh, when people would tell stories about their family lives lesbians and, and gay men and so on that was that was one thing and it was just about okay i think but when women have to tell stories about their abortions which they did incredibly bravely that's the real bravery heather that's standing up and talking about that experience you've been through which may be cathartic because you're breaking a silence but is still a really really difficult thing to do that's a very different matter altogether mm. um, that's talking about something which is very personal and very private in a society in a culture which doesn't talk about these things and by and large we don't talk that much about our personal health whether that's in the uk or whether it's in ireland or wherever it is i mean these are things that we don't do all of that easily. So yeah. they are very, they're very different. The campaigns you run are very different. And I really was very closely involved with both campaigns. And I can tell you that people constantly say to us in the repeal campaign, you must have learned a lot from marriage equality. Yes, we did a huge amount, including what not to do, what would not be appropriate, what is very different in those two campaigns. So the same enemy, but the issues have different meanings in people's yeah. lives and you have to respect that. Yes. Uh, it's been absolutely great talking to you. I think we should draw it to a close. Um, I've learned a lot, actually. Um, oh, good, good to talk to you too. Thank you very much. Thanks, Heather. Yes. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>